Welcome to the Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, the Journal of Christianity and Global Affairs. I'm Assistant Editor Grayson Logue. Over the past few years, we've seen the resurgence of nationalism across the world. In the West, we've seen that with Brexit and its emphasis on national sovereignty. We've seen President Trump embrace the term nationalist. We've seen the rise of nationalist and populist parties across much of Eastern Europe, stretching into Central Asia, in particular with Prime Minister Modi's Bharata Tia Janata Party. That resurgence in the past few years has also been mirrored by a resurgence in intellectual interest in the concept of nationalism. There's been a numerous articles, a number of books, uh, perhaps most notably uh, in recent years, Jerome Hazoni's Virtue of Nationalism. Providence hosted a conference on nationalism this fall, uh, this past fall as well. And today I'm joined by the author of another book on the subject, Rich Lowry. Rich is the editor-in-chief of National Review, a syndicated columnist, and most recently the author of The Case for Nationalism, How It Made Us Powerful, United, and Free. Rich, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So let's jump right in. Why a book about nationalism and why now? Well, my book was really occasioned by President Trump, in particular his inaugural address, which got me interested in the topic. I wrote a column about it. I wrote a, a long magazine piece with a colleague, Ramesh Panuru, uh, defending nationalism, and then I delved in, into it more deeply in this book. And prior to the rise of Trump, I really had the, the lazy, conventional attitude of most people that there's something really bad about nationalism. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but it, it's bad, and patriotism is is good. And at the outset of the book, I reject that terminological uh, distinction and set out how patriotism comes from the, the Latin patre, same root as patriarchy, uh, father, fatherhood, land of our fathers, loyalty to our own. And nationalism is the doctrine or idea that a distinct people united by common culture, uh, common history, should govern a distinct territory. And for me, that that basic concept is unassailable. It defines the modern world, uh, the current international system, and has really been mo made modern democracy as we know it possible. Okay. So that's you're starting off there with the distinction between patriotism and nationalism. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you would argue that nationalism is something a bit thicker than patriotism. Patriotism is perhaps merely just loyalty or love of one's own, and nationalism, does it go beyond patriotism? Uh, to something more distinct about a country, about its land, about its people? So I, I think that the two concepts are um, intertwined, um, and loyalty to your own is, is part of nationalism. Uh, what I reject is the definition of patriotism that you see from, from folks both on the, the right and the left, that in America, patriotism is just attachment to a set of ideas and a belief in a set of ideas. And kind of the, the crudest, most far-reaching expression of this idea is that America itself is just an idea. And I, I think that is um, indefensible, profoundly wrong. Obviously, our ideals are important to us, but there's not a conflict the way a lot of people set it up uh, inherently be, uh, between nationalism and, and ideals. Kind of the best nationalisms are suffused with ideals. Certainly, uh, ours uh, has been. And I don't think you get the uh, ideals of America without the predicate of the culture of America, uh, which is the cult cultural um, 
nationalism, I, I think, is, is really um, important, and that the ideals wouldn't have mattered so much, wouldn't have had the impact on the world that they did if it weren't for other kind of nationalistic considerations. The extent and the power of the nation uh, ha have, have been very important and always in intertwined with the fate of our ideas. The reason, one of the reasons we get a constitution is because Hamilton and Washington, Madison and others fear that the, the American political project is going to fall apart at the beginning and discredit everything that the revolution had been about. So the basic instinct there was that you should have a strong and capable uh, national government, which is one of the roots of American nationalism. Um, but uh, the founders and the drafters of the Constitution realized that there was this relationship um, between the two um, national strength and our ideals. So it's not an either or, it's an and in both. It's an and in both. And part of, I guess, the point of this book is to, to bring back that both aspect of this concept that you seem there's been this overemphasis on purely the ideals of the country, America being just only an ideal. Uh, and that's, I think, paralleled with a certain cosmopolitan view of the world where we're a little bit disembodied with ideals mm -hmm. potentially, and that's certainly something that Yoram talks about in his book. What, in your mind, are the essential differences between a nation embodying a nationalist view of itself and the world and a cosmopolitan view of itself and the world? So uh, cosmopolitanism um, thinks that the, the nation is small-minded, that borders are uh, too ex exclusionary, and that there's such a thing as the citizen of the world. I'm not sure whether any nation really uh, embodies this point of view. I, I open the book with Emmanuel Macron um, in, a, in a speech um, talking about the difference between patriotism and nationalism and how nationalism disgraces uh, and discredits uh, our slights our, our ideals. Um, but in, when we put our interests over our ideals, we're, we're losing something important. But France puts its interests right. <laughs> first. Uh, it's one of the most nationalistic countries in the world. So there's a certain uh, incoherence taken to its logical end. Essentially, what you're saying is that everyone, basically, because that's how they act in their own lives, to a certain degree, puts their own interests first. That doesn't mean you don't have values that might put right. others ahead of you in certain scenarios, but there, there's something natural about the national interest being primary that yes. is incoherent in a cosmopolitan view. Yeah, abs absolutely. So it, it kind of builds out uh, the nation is, in one sense, this is obviously a real simplification, but it's the family writ large, where you, you're just going to inherently care about your spouse, your children, your mother, your father, your siblings, more than other people. Doesn't mean you hate other people. Um, doesn't mean that a certain level you don't care and love other people as well, but you know them better. Um, you are bonded to them, uh, whether you like it or not, you didn't, and you didn't choose um, this, this bond. And I think that a, similar things are true of the nation. Now, the EU is a, genuinely a, a cosmopolitan uh, project where the, the seed of it was the uh, argument that nationalism had led to to uh, bloody, uh, horrifying conflagrations in Europe in the 20th century. We had to get past nationalism and have some super uh, national state in Europe. I, I don't think it the project will succeed um, ultimately because the uh, you know Finns really don't care about the French and the <laughs> French don't really care about the Poles and the Poles don't care about any of them. They they all care about their interests and they have their distinct. A culture. So when I put when push comes to shove, I don't think they'll be able to dissolve 
uh, the constituent sovereignties that make up the EU. And of course, we've seen that uh, play out in the, the Brexit vote in the UK, which is probably the, the, uh, the best and purest expression of nationalism over the last several years. Trump represents aspects of it, but gets all tangled up with his populism and with his, his personality and his combativeness. Uh, the, the, the vote in the UK was just a simple question that is uh, at, at the root of nationalism. Should Britain be ruled by British people or not? Should it be ruled by Brussels or should it be ruled uh, in, in Westminster? And to me, the, the answer to that question is completely obvious. You mentioned uh, some perhaps excesses of nationalism that Europe had to overcome. Let's get into a little bit to the history of the term, the history of it uh, as it's played out in particular in Europe. Um, in the late 18th uh, century, nationalism as a force was historically liberalizing. This is something that you point out in the book, something that uh, other scholars like Joe Lepore, Harvard historian in her book, uh, Case for the Nations, has argued that um, nationalism, at least at that point in history, was a liberalizing force because it gave concepts like national sovereignty, life, it embodied concepts like citizenship, individual rights. So those paralleled together to establish the nation-state system that now defines essentially right. the modern world. Um, Lepore tracks that history, agrees that it was liberalizing then. Uh, she then argues that with the nation-state model kind of more or less established as a norm in the 20th century, nationalism morphed into something more nefarious. Uh, and we can see that perhaps most typically if you look at, at Nazi Germany, but also a lot of the Baltic states and the type of ethnic nationalism that arose uh, from that era. Is that included in your, outside your conception of nationalism, included in your conception of nationalism? How would you contend with that? As I think that's part of people's anxiety and yeah. aversion to the term. Is that history? Yeah, so uh, it's absolutely right that in the 18th century it was a, a liberalizing uh, phenomenon because the, the basic insight was that the nation didn't belong to a monarch. It should belong to the people, and a nation shouldn't be ruled by an imperial uh, center. And the great empires of Europe, none of them were liberal or democratic because in an empire, when you have all sorts of different peoples uh, hooked into it, someone has to rule. So there has to be a dominant language. There has to be a dominant culture. And the, the, the people who have their own languages and cultures um, – that aren't governing themselves are going to want to govern themselves. And the, the history, as soon as the repressive apparatus of an empire gives way, then the constituent peoples want to go their own way and govern themselves. And we saw this with the Ottoman Empire, with the Habsburg Empire, uh, with the traditional Russian Empire, and with the Soviet Empire in the 20th century. Now, uh, nationalism in, in Europe, especially uh, late 19th, early 20th century, does um, – take on, in some cases, quite a malign form. And it becomes mixed up with all these other trends, with militarism, with social Darwinism, uh, with so-called biological or scientific uh, racism. So I, I would argue that that was not true nationalism. Uh, what I'm mainly concerned with in the book is defending the American nationalist uh, tradition, which I, I think has is, is always uh, been different. But when you take the most extreme example in Europe, the Nazis, they appealed to nationalistic sentiments and used nationalist tropes, but if Hitler would, had just been a nationalist, he wouldn't have been one of the worst monsters in world history. It's, it's the unique aspects of, of Nazism over and above nationalism and in certain respects opposed uh, to nationalism 
that that accounted for Nazism's uh, unique evil, the idea of the Aryans are going to rule Germany and not just Germany, but the rest of Europe in this uh, in these wars of extermination. Um, th- that that is is something beyond and outside uh, the nationalist tradition. And if you look at World War II, I'd argue it was the small d democratic nationalists who stood up and fought uh, Hitler, De Gaulle, Churchill, FDR. Okay, let's one more point on European nationalism, then I want to talk a little bit about American nationalism. So I'm inclined to agree with you that Hitler and Nazi Germany and kind of the imperial-like-esqueness of the Third Reich is, is more of a unique case. If you look in Eastern Europe at kind of during the decline of the Ottoman Empire and of the Baltic states, you have peoples who themselves thought of themselves as nations along kind of ethnic and linguistic lines, um, and they all kind of were vying for statehood, but they lacked the political institutions, they lacked the distinct territory, and there we can see kind of a slipping of nationalism into uh, ethnic lines and all, all the history and, and, and the mass slaughter that could come after that and did come after that. So on, in your view of nationalism, that wouldn't be a valid nationalism because it lacked a distinct land, because it lacked a particular character to its political institutions. What would you say for kind of the, the Baltic question? Well, I, I would say kind of the, the worst example in the Baltics was the Serbs, and it was nationalism, and it was just a really bad form of nationalism, and it was kind of poisoned um, from the, the beginning in the sense of historic uh, grievance and shot through with kind of paranoia and uh, violence. So w- with Serbs, I, I would um, – Nazis are much more comfortable, and I think it's correct to say, well, that's not – that's not nationalism, but the Serbian case, it is nationalism. It's just a malign form of, of nationalism, and um, I, I don't think there's any denying that or looking away uh, from that. I just think, one, the American tradition is different. Two, is any really basic force uh, in our world um, can be put to, to good or ill uh, uses, and nationalism, because it's, it's powerful, it's old, it's natural um, – you you'll have autocrats and, and dictators uh, making uh, appeal uh, to it. It's just um, they they very often twist it, and it becomes something um, different than nationalism when it it justifies uh, taking other people's territory and governing uh, other people. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about American nationalism. I want to first get into kind of seeing if applying the critiques of European nationalism hold any water. In the American context. In the book, you talk about U.S. continental expansion, um, and you argue also that when nationalism kind of manifests as uh, unjustified military aggression or imperialism, that that either isn't nationalism or at least a bad nationalism. But you also describe American continental expansion as one of the great nationalist projects of the country, coming at the expense of Native Americans, coming at the expense yeah. of Mexico. So my, I guess my question would be, in the American context or just in a general context for nationalism at a principal level, what limits that type of territorial expansion aside from just military might? Yeah, so it, it, it should be what we uh, – what the United States had a huge hand in developing in the 20th century, which is a robust appreciation for the sovereign rights and prerogatives of uh, other peoples. In terms of our continental expansion, I just think it's inarguable as an enormous boon – uh, to our nation, but there obviously um, the treatment of the Indians, especially, is one of our great national sins. So the war with Mexico, I, I have a, a little bit more relaxed attitude to it than than some uh, critics. 
not not to delve into the details, but there is entirely just, in my view, Texas Revolution, you know, against a, a Mexican dictatorship. The Texans really legitimately wanted to become a part of the United States, and Mexico told us, well, don't even think about it or we'll, we'll wage war uh, over it. Now, Polk obviously was spoiling for a fight, uh, but Mexico technically, in part because of its provocation, uh, fires the first shot. And then the, the territory we take from Mexico is almost entirely unoccupied by Mexicans. Um, they, they had tried uh, to, to govern and rule it and populate it uh, unsuccessfully. So uh, um, th- th- this, this to me is not a great national sin. The treatment of the Indians, which was cruel and uh, duplicitous and racist, um, is, is really um, right up there with chattel slavery. Uh, but I, I think this was a, a tragic inevitability. Mm. Uh, I don't think there's you can come up with any counterexample of a settler society encountering indigenous people um, where the indigenous people weren't um, uh, pushed aside. I wish we had stayed true to our commitments uh, to them. But there was a deep uh, cultural divide, including over what constituted property, where uh, Native Americans had a much looser view of property rights that would, uh, and I, I'm simplifying horribly, that would encompass, you know, hunting grounds that you you didn't occupy and approve. And uh, European settlers kind of thought, well, if you're not putting a fence up around it and making it better, it's not really yours. Right. So that was among the kind of the deep uh, cultural conflicts. But there was definitely a, um, a kind of cultural imperialism uh, to our continental um, expansion. Gotcha. Okay. You have argued in the book and said in talking about the book that this is kind of like a mainstream tradition, American nationalism, that runs through uh, figures like Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson to a degree, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, and and that's a good thing, that it's it's a a tradition that should be accessible uh, across party lines. This past summer, we had the National Conservatism Conference. I was there. You were there as a speaker. Uh, one of the most interesting speakers to me was Patrick Deneen, and he gave a talk on nationalism, and he was quite skeptical of figures like TR. He was essentially arguing that we should have a nationalism only insofar as it supports and enables the local and regional identities, the families and communities, and he was suspicious of the kind of early 20th century cultivation of nationalism, that it abstracted these loyalties to the larger nation state and disembodying them to a certain degree. So what are, what are your thoughts on kind of Deneen's take there? Because I, I thought it mirrored your superstructure argument of we don't want to say just the na- uh, abstract loyalties insofar as they're just the nation um, is, is, isn't what we should be doing either. Yeah, so I thought that was a really interesting speech too. And I think in character for Deneen, who um, when I first saw him on the program, I was like, why is he a nationalist? Because <laughs> he's really um, – and I've only dipped into his his books, so maybe I'm being unfair. But I would characterize him more as an anti-federalist, uh, where he thinks that the Constitution of the United States uh, was was a, a, a mistake from the beginning. Now, obviously, it's it's true uh, that under our system, and this is something we should be very protective of under the Constitution. You know, there's wide latitude given for um, different forms of of government and regional cultures. You know, in in states and localities, and that's not something we should uh, um, w- want to do away with or change. You know, our national tradition is not that of of France, of you know, with the heavily centralizing um, tendency. But I just don't see 
like in the real world in say you know the early 20th century when TR was at its height that wasn't a bad time for the American family or a bad time for a community I think it's later uh, when you see the the growth of an overweening um, uh, central state and uh, certain welfare programs that begin to see uh, a re real tension with federal activism and w with these kind of uh, values uh, in, and uh, local and personal affiliations that we want to uh, protect. So I, I don't see necessarily a conflict between um, nationalism and, and that, um, that flexibility is built into the, the U.S. system. Like having a constitution didn't hurt the family. Uh, having a strong navy didn't, didn't hurt the family. You know, having an assimilationist ethic didn't hurt the family. Expanding across the continent didn't hurt the family. So I just don't see, I don't see the um, uh, the, the tension that he does, unless you're defining kind of all of the progressive uh, impulse to nationalism, which I think would be uh, unfair. Okay, well, let's talk about the present day. So. In America right now, NR has written a lot about the problem of social isolation, kind of community disintegration. That's a topic that a lot of social scientists are exploring. Um, in that context, is there a danger in national identity becoming a little too thick? Basically, mm -hmm. people, as they are experiencing community breakdown, they perhaps turn to politics as a form of communal identity. Right. That increases partisanship, it increases division, which is sort of the opposite of what you say nationalism should serve to do. Right. So. Uh, just talk a little bit about that tension or potential danger that we have right now. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely uh, true. And and you know, key aspect of the conservative vision, and I'm a conservative. My nationalism is part of my conservatism. Is that uh, counter to what a libertarian might think? A libertarian sees the relationship of the individual to the, the state as kind of the the main definer of society and of uh, the direction of history. A uh, conservative considers that important, but more important is what is in between uh, the individual and the state. And uh, ideally, you want this uh, space created for robust civil institutions, and like the family foremost uh, among them, but all sorts of civic groups and civic attachments. And one of the reasons that we were feeling so bad uh, even though you know objective conditions in the country are so good, you know relative peace, and now we've had a, you know economic growth for the last ten years, is that that middle part is increasingly uh, hollowed out, and the relationship between the individual and the state that makes you free uh, if you get it right, but all the stuff in the middle is what you make makes you happy. Um, so we, we've actually um, weirdly, e even though conservatives have lost a lot of the size of government arguments. Um, people are, are they're not really less free in, in many respects. They're more free than, than they've ever ha ever been. But they're also, many of them, uh, more unhappy. Um, because if you're free but, um, you, you know, you're not married and you're not in the workforce and you're not going to church, the chances are you're not very happy. And um, th that, that's one of the, the drivers, complicated phenomenon of the so-called uh, deaths of despair. But um, – this is a, a long way by saying, yes, if, if people want to substitute, try to substitute the meaning uh, that you get from those kind of relationships with, um, uh, with, with nationalism or with partisan affiliations, that's not what either of those things are, are for. 
you've mentioned a little bit earlier that you, you try to disassociate some of um, the president's kind of more erratic tendencies from nationalism, even though he, he's embraced the term. Um, it doesn't seem that nationalism has taken off very at all on the other side of the political spectrum and the left. They think of it oftentimes as inherently racist or tied kind of inextricably to fascism. As a prudential practical question, not as a matter of kind of like history or theory, um, is there a scenario in which reviving nationalism is unhealthy in political discourse? Essentially, if you have one side of the spectrum, regardless of the merits mm -hmm. of the concept in your argument that is kind of rejecting it, just by virtue of that rejection, it becomes another partisan divisive term right. uh, in our politics. Yeah, it's definitely a risk. Uh, I'm not sure how to avoid it because I think any term that Trump used really um, for, uh, for these impulses and tendencies and beliefs of his – would be rejected by um, the the other side, and you know, I think Trump's nationalism when he's on the teleprompter, he's he's given a couple of speeches at the UN, um, his best speech of his presidency at um, in Warsaw, the, his nationalism is is unassailable, and what he talked about in that Poland speech was just the amazing resilience of the Polish nation because it was so Polish and it had these cultural attachments and loyalties that never gave way even under the most uh, hideous occupations um, and and partitions even of the country. And this is a, an insight that Trump, and this is, I'm sure this is the only case where this is true, they shares with uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who's, mm. who said the same thing to the Poles, you know, when they were uh, under occupation by the Russians, don't, don't let them stop you from being Polish, then they'll never really absorb you and they'll ne you'll never go away. And that turned out to be true. Problem with Trump is when he's off the, the teleprompter, and I, I think nationalism should inherently ha be a unifying appeal and a uf unifying concept. But he um, uh, slights that aspect of it. Uh, he's needlessly uh, divisive. Um, I, I think an idea that really uh, an episode that really captures it was his fight with over Baltimore, where he said, you know, no human being would want to live in West Baltimore. Well, the fact is human beings do live in West Baltimore, and they're not just human beings, they're Americans, right? Yeah. And you're the, the head of the American state. So this is not <laughs> this is not how you should speak of your countrymen. And just repeatedly, um, because of his, his uh, persona, which is combative to a fault, he falls down on that aspect of nationalism. And Democrats have um, rejected even Bernie Sanders, who had much more of a nationalist a aspect uh, to his his politics, has turned away from it, and and we'll see, you know, how it turns out in 2020. I think if Democrats lose, that will be one of the reasons that um, they could go further left on economics. There was room for that, uh, but they had to give a little on on these kind of cultural issues and nationalistic issue, issues to communicate to the middle of the country that they share their their values. Now maybe they they beat Trump. And um, it's the lesson they take is, yeah, it was good to reject nationalism. We don't have to have anything to do with that. If they lose, perhaps there'll be uh, a rethinking. But um, uh, we'll see. I, I just think that there's a, a democratic, small, uh, large D democratic nationalist uh, tradition that the, the party uh, is foolish to lose touch with, but they don't take any. They don't take advice from me, Grace. <laughs> <laughs> no, I certainly agree with you there that there is that tradition, and there's there's figures that you highlight in the book, in particular Teddy Roosevelt with with his bully pulpit. I think that that is an important aspect of ensuring um, 
national movements and nationalism in the American context is a liberal nationalism. It's not an illiberal nationalism. I think the president has a platform there and a role uh, to kind of guide that ethos. You, you talk a little bit about immigration and the ethos of assimilation towards the end of the book. Um, my question with regard to that is when it comes to assimilation, when it comes to people coming from other parts of the world, coming to the country, obviously there's a contentious history in America as to how assimilation was previously defined racially, previously defined uh, in these more spur spurious terms. What habits of assimilation, in your view, um, are essentially cultural and cultural insofar as they're non-governmental, something that the government shouldn't take a hand in, or if they have taken a hand in it in the past, it's, it's, it's been more harmful than helpful? Um, and do you think the presidency as a platform is an essential part of cultivating that culture of uh, assimilation and giving a unifying tone for people to assimilate to. Yeah, so I think the key things are, one, learning language, which is absolutely essential. Uh, language is, is the basis of, of nationalism everywhere, even in uh, this country, and uh, learning English just just be the, the basic demand. And then there's just the feeling like an American, you know, feeling an uh, attachment to this this place, learning its history, uh, learning its its uh, civic uh, rituals, honoring its its symbols, and uh, just what I worry about, you know, immigrants throughout our history have done this, uh, and it's been an amazing story. It's just the the last time we had immigration at this high a level, every aspect of our culture and our governmental institutions and our elite institutions had their shoulders to the wheel to make sure this happened. Plus, you, you, it was a different, different time uh, economically. It was very easily easy. You'd come over and you'd basically be plugged into a factory line um, somewhere. It was harder to communicate back home. Um, there were two world wars that were enormous uh, assimilative events for better or uh, worse. And then in 1924, there was, uh, in many respects, an ill-intentioned immigration law that, that basically hit the pause button on immigration. So ethnic enclaves that developed couldn't be constantly uh, replenished. And that was also an important aspect to assimilation. So I worry that the, the culture of assimilation is frayed. Uh, the elite institutions, many of them um, reject the idea of assimilation because they think it's, it's too exclusionary asking someone to adopt your own culture. It seems completely uh, bizarre to me. And, um, and, and high levels have uh, continued. So there, there are parts of the country where you can get away with uh, speaking exclusively Spanish. And, and that's just, uh, that's something I, I worry about very much. President, you know, he can set a tone. I'm not sure there's much he can do. Immigration policy, I think if you had a more skills-based system and a system that valued whether people spoke English already uh, before they came, uh, that would, that would, um, that would help, but uh, it, it's something I worry about. So you mentioned kind of the all-hands-on-deck culture of assimilation in the early 20th century, um, which I certainly agree with you. It was very thick and a very part of the culture, kind of reinforcing that through two world wars. A part of that culture of assimilation was also negative in the sense that if you were Eastern European instead of Western European, or if you were Asian instead of white, that you weren't actually included in that assimilatory effort. Your argument is, correct me if I'm wrong, saying that that was perhaps an overcorrection or an excess of that, or we hadn't quite fully opened up what it meant to be American to all people groups. 
Um, but in reaction to that in the modern day, particularly in the intellectual and academic space, that has led to kind of a rejection yeah. of having cultural cohesion whatsoever. And this is something that I think Joe Lepore writes about really well, um, arguing about how in the 1970s historians kind of rejected the history of the nation. But in so doing, nationalism doesn't go away. It just kind of goes back into these darker corners without the type of molding of the traditional mainline nationalist tradition. And then you get kind of more far right circles. Would that be an accurate kind of characterization in your mind? Well, I think the you know the the um, the history of immigration restriction in this country is shot through with racism, and that's bad, especially with uh, with regard to Asian Americans. And there there is this kind of layering, tectonic layers, where uh, okay, we're we're uh, British, we're British American. That's what we are. Okay, we're we're Western Europeans, and then oh, okay, no, we're we're Eastern Europeans and, and Jews too. Oh, okay, actually, we're we're Asians and, and Latin Americans as well. That's good. I mean, that that's been that's genuine um, progress. So I I wouldn't um, uh, you know de- de- defend that element of our history um, at all. But what I, what I reject, I don't know whether you want to get to the sixteen project, sixteen nineteen project a, a little bit, is we obviously had these great uh, national failings and national sins, chattel slavery, the very worst, um, but they don't define the entirety of, of what this country uh, is. And it, it's, it's always had the capacity to grow and to, to, open, uh, to open up. And um, I, I just, where I think people go too far on the, the other side is they, they um, define the commitment to the American nation itself as of a piece with the small-mindedness of wanting to exclude Asian Americans just because they're Asian American. That it, 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 uh, that, that itself, the commitment to the nation and borders itself is kind of tainted uh, with racism. And uh, that, that I completely reject. And I, I think, and certainly in the American instance and in the case of true nationalism, nationalism gives you a loyalty over and above race, tribe, uh, ethnicity, partisanship, and that's why it's more important um, in this this time than than ever before. In in my view, because people they want to feel attached to something, and it's a little bit like you know Chesterton. If you don't believe in God, you're going to believe in something else. Mm-hmm. If you don't feel attached to the the nation, you're going to feel attached to something else. And the, the alternatives besides you know religion are are bad. Mm-hmm. You know it's it's partisan loyalty. It's uh, it's it's race, and th- those things will will tear us apart um, if they they aren't leavened leavened by a, a higher commitment that unites us all. Because you know, um, not all people can be white, not all people can be black, not all people can be Hispanic. They all can be Americans, and that's the glory of this country. No, I definitely agree with you there. I, I will say for for projects like the sixteen nineteen project, um, there is an important kind of line uh, in American history, specifically the field of history of opening up the sense of American identity. And sometimes those projects might go a little too far, but I do think that is an important piece of contributing and supporting in some cases driving similar to how you point out uh, John Dewey in the progressive era, that the ferment of that era insofar as it opened to the society was was a good, obviously there, there can be excesses there uh, as well. 
Before I let you go, I do want to get your take on on some more recent current events. Sure. You had an article uh, on NR the website last week on Trump in Iran. The title: Neither neocon nor isolationist. I thought it was a very interesting piece. How about you unpack it a little bit for our readers? Thanks. So, uh, in reaction to Trump's killing of Qasem Soleimani, there's kind of a, a freak out on the left and also parts of the Trump supporting right that also. Oops, here's George W. Bush again. And Trump obviously rose up in opposition to George W. Bush. I think his, his nationalism is in part was motivated by a sense that foreign policy and the Bush and uh, even the Obama years had been overly uh, idealistic and not cold-eyed uh, enough, and we needed to focus more on our own um, interests. And the Soleimani strike, uh, to me, was kind of a classic expression of the Trump approach, which, as the great analyst Walter Russell Mead uh, cited over and over again on this uh, appropriately, is a Jacksonian uh, impulse, which is it's not strictly isolationist. It doesn't have a great interest in the rest of the world as long as they're not bothering us. But as soon as there's a perceived threat, um, the the reaction not to blame ourselves, not to hide away in a shell, but to go eliminate this, this threat with all due uh, dispatch and force. And that's what uh, Trump did with with Soleimani and his red line, you know, Trump's red line didn't have anything to do with our values or any humanitarian um, concerns. It was just don't harm Americans. That's what I'm telling you. Don't do that. And that's that's also, I think, kind of a, a Jacksonian impulse and a, a, a real lowest common denominator, a nationalist I- impulse. So this didn't herald um, Trump turning around and all of a sudden saying, well, we're going to go invade Iran and transform their society. That's what wasn't what it was about at all. It was about protecting Americans and making sure, uh, tr- trying to ensure that the Iranians would at least think twice before doing it again. Yeah, uh, Providence Readers should be no stranger to Walter Russell Mead, a contributing editor. I would definitely encourage all of you who haven't already read a Special Providence, the book where uh, Walter lays out the, the four dominant schools, including Jacksonianism. Uh, you can find it on Amazon. You can also find Rich's book, The Case for Nationalism, on on, uh, on Amazon. Great segue, I'd encourage Grace. you to read it. Yeah, <laughs> a little plug there. Um, but uh, I think we're out of time. But thank you so much, Rich. Thanks for uh, having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh,